0: Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today, we're going to be talking with Nicholas Danforth. He's a regular contributor on the podcast. He's also an editor of midafternoonmap.com, our map blog that features uh, historical and contemporary maps uh, of the Middle East and any other sort of map that happens to catch Nick's attention. Nick, it's great to be talking with you again.
1: Great to be back here again, Chris.
0: Our discussion is entitled Arabs Through Turkish Eyes. It certainly is. And um, more specifically, we're going to be focusing on some representations of uh, Middle East politics in the Turkish press from the 1930s period up through the 1950s. And uh, we want to remind our listeners who are tuning in via iTunes or some other method that we do have quite a few visuals up on our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com. In fact this conversation will revolve around absolutely indispensable but it's visuals. really not going to make
1: much sense if you're not looking at the cartoons
0: we are talking about pictures or we could call them representations and nick i actually want to ask cartoon you cartoon representations cartoon representations but you know with mid afternoon map and some of i know some of your other work you you always seem to be dealing with the issue of representation right you are you're, you 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 do you work a lot it's on studying representation from.
1: it's hard to get away from
0: I mean, the subject of a lot of your analysis is how the past was represented or how people in the past represented their present or indeed their past. I want to ask you, what is it about this uh, issue of representation that fascinates you so much?
1: I think it's that we're working at a period of time when scholars especially have become very interested in representations. And they've been interested in the way representations, let's say specifically in the foreign policy world, shape decision-making, how people's perceptions, how people's views Uh, shape the policies that they adopt this is the cultural turn in diplomatic history and in one sense i think this is this is very interesting representations are obviously a lot of fun to look at it's very engaging Um, in some ways it's very it's an important change from the way people were looking at decision making before but at another level i think for all that i enjoy dealing with representations in some ways, the conversation has gone a little too far. In some ways, people have started to take the role of representations in decision-making too seriously, given them too much causal agency. And so in some ways, I think what I've been trying to do in a lot of my work is say that because representations, because our views of things are so complicated, so nuanced, and so malleable, they actually have far less of an impact on our decisions than we think they do. And in fact, it's usually... Very pragmatic factors that drive decision making, and then representations that get molded, twisted, changed to fit the kind of the needs of decision makers.
0: And I think you were trying to ref- reflect on this a little bit in that piece you recently did in the Atlantic. That you know, I, I read some of the comments that people made on in our group, but also on the Atlantic website, and you had you had made this argument that, well, essentially the framework was the problem of colonialism in the Middle East was not the colonial borders themselves, per se, but rather the colonial policies, and that the idea that there are somehow natural borders uh, is maybe a flawed assumption that a lot of people are operating on.
1: I mean, it's a frustrating paradox. On one hand, I obviously love maps. On the other hand, I feel like in situations like this, it's important to make the argument that maps actually might not be what matter. Uh, It's very easy to look at the borders. It's very easy to demonstrate how ridiculous borders can be in some situations. Uh, Because that's so visually clear, it often makes it seem like a very compelling critique. But I think it's sometimes necessary to go past the visuals, past the maps, um, and past some of the more exciting, more dynamic, and visually appealing representations to get to the kind of more boring, more old-fashioned factors that really shaped what was going on.
0: And so I guess some of these concerns are going to be in the background of our discussion today, or the foreground. We're going to be talking about um, images that appeared in Akbaba, which is an illustrated Turkish periodical. Could you uh, explain a little bit about Akbaba? You know, sort of its period of operation, the political and social worldview that informed it, etc. Before we get into the, the discussion of these images.
1: Yeah, it's a long-running satirical magazine that focused on cartoons. A lot of very colorful very engaging and well-drawn, uh, we should say cartoons that had a very long history um and this is in part one of the reasons I chose it to look at because you can see the same a lot of the same artists, the same editorial staff dealing with issues from the 30s, 40s and 50s. And there were some brief gaps in that period, but and it's also it's a very mainstream publication. It was designed to appeal to a kind of an ordinary Turkish reader, it was designed to embody something of the conventional wisdom, something of the, to sort of be a spokesperson for the nation, as the editors imagined it.
0: And so when you say a spokesperson for the nation, are you saying that they have a nationalist uh, agenda or a nationalist worldview, or is it a Kamalist thing? Where do they fall on the Turkish political spectrum there?
1: I guess when I say mainstream, right, they were mainstream for a Kamalist era when Almost all mainstream intellectuals, almost all public figures, almost all people who were writing for a large audience were very unapologetically nationalist in their outlook, were unapologetically Kamalist. It doesn't mean that they always praised everything the government did. In fact, what makes Akbaba interesting is in some cases it did take a very critical line towards the government, but always towards the politicians, never towards the principles towards the, that they represented, never towards the state itself.
0: In that regard, it's a good weather vane for maybe some of the dominant. Uh, That's a good way to put it, Discourses right. of the, in Turkey during the period. So,
1: and I think um, at some level they were trying to be a weather vane. They were trying to represent the kind of consensus opinion.
0: And so, while uh, we will only talk about Akbaba, some of the conclusions we're going to come to here, I think, can be more g- broadly generalized to this mainstream press. Would you say that? You've researched
1: No, I, I very much hope so. And yes, a lot of my other research has involved other publications from these same time periods from a wide range of different ideological perspectives. And yeah, I think what part of what's nice about Akbaba is that it is a very centrist. So it is a very centrist publication that can really be used as an indicator of where some kind of mainstream opinion stood. So the one thing that's been written about Akbaba that I think might be worth just mentioning, uh, some people have said that because of the editor's pro-German stance that the anti-Semitism in Akbaba was particularly pronounced. And at some level that seems almost too charitable to a lot of the other publications that were writing at that time. Maybe it was a little more, maybe the anti-Semitism was a little more insistent in Akbaba, but it's certainly in terms of some of the images we'll be talking about, in terms of some of the views we'll be talking about, is not very far removed from what you'd see in other publications, especially during the World War II period.
0: And, uh, I mean, in that regard, we might expect that Akbaba has a lot in common with a lot of uh, publications outside of Turkey in Europe and the United States with uh, occasional anti-Semitic.
1: Well, and that's what's interesting, right, to say that clearly, by the time you get into the 1950s, you're certainly seeing stuff uh, in Akbaba that you would never see in the United States press at the time, in part because of the way World War II specifically created a reaction to anti-Semitism in the United States. But right now, we're certainly not saying that Turkey was the only country that was uh, writing or thinking this kind of stuff. And you don't necessarily have to look that much further back in American print history to see similar stuff here.
0: And so the images we're going to be dealing with, um, you know, they're cartoons. They they draw on stereotypes. They draw on uh, dominant representations. And they use these representations to comment on current events and on politics and on certain subjects of controversy or interest during right you know, the period right. they're written in. well being that we're talking well being that you've chosen uh, the title of Arabs through Turkish eyes I guess we should start with some of the representations of the Arab world in Akbaba well, first of all why did why did you choose why did you choose to focus on representations of the Arab world in Akbaba anyway
1: in part because I think they offer a really good opportunity to challenge some of the misconceptions we have about Turkish views of the Middle East, Turkish policies towards the Middle East, and the connection between these two things during the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There's been this widespread perception, both that Turkey, because of its Kamalist background, because of a residual antipathy towards Arabs from World War I, it had an incredibly negative view, of the Arab world, and that this negative view led it to adopt more pro-European foreign policy or a more European-oriented foreign policy or to ignore the Middle East. And that this is connected to the idea that somehow during the 1950s, because of Turkey's enthusiasm for NATO, its eagerness to ally with the United States, it again continued this very anti-Arab foreign policy to the point where most famously, I mean, it would support resolutions in favor of France on the Algeria question in the United Nations. Uh, And this has created this perception that Turkey was very unsympathetic to anti-colonial issues and that it was somehow naturally deferential to the European position over the Arab position
0: through this early Cold War period. And so I guess we're going to complicate that by looking at these representations. And also, again, it's important to mention that this is this periodical we're looking at is a gauge of popular opinion, but, you know, government decisions are not only dictated by popular opinion, they're also dictated by political imperatives and realities, right? We, we have to distinguish between sympathy for anti-colonialism and an ability for the government to actually side with anti-colonial movements um, and that's a very good way of putting it
1: right that instead of this idea that Turkey was because they were still bitter about World War One for example completely unsympathetic to Arab anti-colonialism where I think that's a much better way of putting it that there actually was on the popular level a great deal of sympathy towards all anti-colonial movements especially Arab and Muslim anti-colonial movements and so right to see why Turkey might have sided with France or with England Uh, You very much have to look at the practical necessities that were driving their foreign policy, the Cold War geostrategic picture, and that in some ways I think this is analogous to the United States position. A lot has been written about this, that especially after World War II, America was inclined to be very sympathetic towards the colonized world. It instinctively wanted to side with anti-colonial movements. And yet, because of its political relationships with France and England, because of its Cold War position, because of this overwhelming sense that everything was geared towards fighting the USSR, the United States often found itself siding with England and France against anti-colonial movements, torn between sympathy and pragmatism, often going with a pragmatic choice. And I think in many ways, Turkey's situation was similar.
0: Well, I think another factor in there, and it's one we're probably going to deal with here is sympathy for a particular political cause does not always or is not mutually exclusive with a sense of cultural or even racial superiority.
1: No, very much so, exactly. And I think one of the even more interesting comparisons you can make between the United States and Turkey, as as authors like Thomas Borstelman have written, in some ways American prejudice was often a way for United States policymakers to overcome this tension between pragmatic necessity and their sympathies. For example, it was easy for them to convince themselves when they felt like they had to that, sure, they were on the side of African revolutionary leaders, but these leaders were too immature, they were too childlike, and so inevitably when they got their independence, they would side with the Soviet Union against their best interests. This culturally-based suspicion gave Americans an excuse to do what they thought was in their best interests, side with the British and the French. And I think when you look at a lot of these cartoons, you see a very similar thing operating. You see a very similar thing operating in Turkey in that focusing on the irresponsibility, the childishness of Arabs, uh, their susceptibility to Soviet blandishments was an easy way to square... Sorry, it was a very easy way to square anti-colonial sympathy and practical necessity.
0: Well, I'm glad that the days of... Uh... Such foolish ways are long gone uh, within U.S. policy circles. No, and
1: that's obviously why I think a lot of the stuff is important because the issues that we're dealing with back then are, in many ways, the same issues we're dealing with today.
0: No, what you what you just said really reminds me of the U.S. The, this this uh, this discourse of oh, but the rebels or oh, the revolutionaries or the opposition, their Islamists or their you know Al Qaeda. This is a way of sort of untangling this very tense relationship between wanting to support democracy and freedom and all this right. stuff actually not wanting to do it. This is a good way of justifying it, too.
1: Right, and Michael Hunt has written a lot of great stuff about this, talking about how skepticism of revolution is one of these recurring factors in American foreign policy where we have this pro-revolution instinct based on our own history, but then we're all, we've gotten very good at figuring out why other people's revolutions don't live up to our own and therefore justifying our sometimes... Cool attitude towards them,
0: well, I guess then what we should what we should start with is some of these depictions of imperialism, Obviously, the imperialism of other European states depicted in the Turkish press during this period.
1: I think it's worth going back to the thirties to see that at this time, especially, there was a very strong hostility towards European colonialism. One of the cases where it came out most strongly was with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. This was particularly sensitive for Turkey because it did see Italy as a threat. Italy had obviously occupied part of Anatolia after World War I. There's this very clear sense that Mussolini might want to do this again. And so while, while these sympathies were universal, and this is something I'd want to stress in the podcast a little bit, they came to the fore most clearly when they overlapped with Turkey's strategic interests. And so in this way, hostility or skepticism of Italy made it very easy for them to side with the Ethiopians in their confrontation with the Italians.
0: And I think a good image that represents that is this one you have where it has a quote-unquote savage saying, look out, the savages are coming, and you you see these guys with uh, guns and bayonets. Chemical weapons. chemical right. weapons running towards him.
1: In this, I chose these two, I thought they were the most colorful, but there were half a dozen at least, if not a dozen different varieties of this cartoon that popped up in the 30s, always playing on this idea that Right, Europeans thought they were bringing civilization, and here they were behaving more savagely than the savages. And then, of course,
0: we have this one with the Italian pilot saying, thank God I finally found something to bomb, dropping bombs over Ethiopia. What's the year on this? I mean, this should be right around the exact same time as there, some massacres, right? when When Turkey was, of course, dropping bombs on its quote-unquote savage eastern population.
1: So you see a remarkable ability for people not to make that connection, and I wonder if I mean, right, it's easy to think subconsciously they must have, but it's quite possible they didn't. Right? These two cartoons that are down below, I think, are important because it shows that while they were being very sympathetic to the Ethiopians, they also still could make jokes about how backwards the Ethiopians were. One of them shows the guy using a giraffe as a periscope. Right, the other one has the Italian pilot driving over this uncivilized jungle, being excited that he finally found something, which in this case is a sleeping guy that he can bomb. And you see this continuing that And this is something, of course, with the cartoon medium, it makes it very easy to be derisive towards both parties in a conflict um, in right. So a sense, as you were saying earlier, a sense of superiority and a sense of sympathy can easily coexist. Well, let's move to some of the representations of
0: French imperialism in North Africa. And actually, the one I want to talk about is the picture of the, uh, I guess, French Foreign Legion guy. with his arm in two jars, one with butter and one with honey.
1: Yeah, and I think as you go into the 50s, especially since this be- has become such a fraught issue in Turkish historiography, you see, that, you see that when it comes to cartoons, at least, the sympathy is invariably with the Algerians, with the North Africans. And there's repeated emphasis, as with the cartoons about the Italians in the 30s, on highlighting French hypocrisy. So we'll get to that cartoon in a minute. Right. One of the ones I like, a guy chained by his foot reading a list of human rights, uh, a French officer, a French officer pissing on a document labeled human rights, the Statue of Liberty f- given to the United States compared with the gallows given to the Algerians. And I also know in these particular cartoons, you see some of the less derogatory depictions of Arabs that you will see in the Turkish press. Right. When you're trying to vilify the French... The, right, the, the enemy you don't. The they still don't necessarily come across looking great, but it's a more neutral depiction of them versus right, a much more hostile depiction of the French.
0: Well, we've talked about Italy, we've talked about France, let's talk about Great Britain and the Middle East.
1: Okay, and again, you see some cartoons in there clearly siding with the Egyptians against the British, clearly suggesting that what the British are up to in Palestine is looking out for their own interests, not... And so I think it's worth keeping all this in mind just to say that at least in the abstract, at least when the issue purely seems to be colonialists versus Arabs, when Turkey's interests are not involved and the Soviet Union is not involved, it's clear where Turkey's sympathies lay. And so, yeah, you have this picture where it says, Philistine de Neler oluyor, Uh, what's going on in Palestine? And right, it's a Jewish settler and an Arab fighting over a camel. The British officer comes in, presumably to break up their dispute, ends up beating them both up and walking off with a camel.
0: And I think that's a good point of transition to the next set of uh, pictures you have, which deal with representations of Jews in Akbaba, and specifically the issue of the Zionist movement in Palestine.
1: Well, and right, I think if anti imperialism is one of the predominant themes in Akbaba cartoons going back into the 30s, another one obviously is anti Semitism. Most of the time, this was aimed at Turkish Jews. There's a lot of them on the ferry, usually going out to the Prince's Islands that's the setting for these uh you know it's fairly standard crude stereotypical depictions of jews in the joke 9 times out of 10 is that they love money
0: right a good example of that is this one where we have the translated caption poor moshi the arabs shot him seven times his poor family they can't sell a coat with so many holes so kind of you know banal uh and this cheapness. is a
1: key point right then when they start covering the Zionist movement and the subsequent conflict between Zionists and Arabs, they invariably use this as an opportunity to simply make the same kinds of anti-Semitic jokes they've been making all along in a new context. Right. I
0: mean, that particular cartoon, it does not it's not actually a critique of Zionism or anything in particular. It's actually just taking a cheap shot right. at Jews as sort of a pseudo-critique.
1: Right. Using this as an opportunity to make to an incredibly them. callous joke, but with the same punchline. next to it, there's one of a Jewish salesman saying, if you're going to burn down Jewish villages, at least buy the matches from us. And in this context, I just point out another one that stands out. As I said, part of what's interesting about cartoons is their ability to mock both sides in a conflict. There is a really remarkable one where once the Germans have started losing and Turkey's sort of jumped on the Allied bandwagon celebrating Germany's defeat, there's one with this Jewish peddler buying scrap metal from a German soldier in a pillbox And here it's really remarkable that they managed to both make a joke about the Nazis' defeat, but also about Jews at the same time. And as time went on, they started dealing with Israeli politics, Israel's relation with its neighbors in a more purely political sense, but it always came out of this background and never, I would argue, quite escaped from this background of fairly troubling anti Semitism. So, of course, another important involvement
0: of Turkey in the politics of the Arab world is the dispute over uh, what comes to be known as Hatay or the Antakya province between Syria and Anatolia. Of course, arguably, this obviously was much debated during the period, but arguably and historically a predominantly Arab region becomes part of Turkey after political struggle that never really becomes a military struggle, but nonetheless is one of the most contentious uh, foreign... Policy issues in Turkey in the twentieth century,
1: and here I would say it's striking that the most, the most negative depictions of Arabs, the most visually ugly depictions of Arabs, seem to come up right, especially in thirty-eight, thirty-nine, when this conflict is at its height, and when Arab interests and Turkish interests seem to be pitted directly against each other. So, what's this picture of
0: the guy screaming, Antakya and Iskenderun
1: and here, this is another great example of managing to belittle both sides. Here, the Arabs haven't even been able to free themselves from France. They're still stuck in France's giant mouth, and yet they're busy greedily begging for part of Turkey's territory, supposedly.
0: And this is kind of an interesting argument. It's saying, basically, look, at least we're a free country. At least we're a proper nation state. Here are these ge- these colonial subjects they, they would dare to demand a piece of our territory. Right. Kind of a...
1: Right, that they're both childlike and greedy at the same time, exactly.
0: And a similar representation is this one with the snake.
1: Right, and a lot of these play on the whole gender idea of Antakya being a beautiful woman that the lecherous Arab is lusting after. Uh, and you actually see a similar cartoon in one case with Aleppo suggesting that it's just a matter of time before Turkey can free Aleppo from... From Syria's disgusting grasp, and so
0: we can see how a political, and so we can see how when Arabs are placed in the roles of the political adversary, that's when the really negative depictions right. come out. It might not seem that surprising, but we're, we're pointing out that you know these these negative depictions are rooted in a political context that right. maybe isn't really about race or about right prejudice. that these
1: racial images are available. The prejudice is there, but it can get invoked as necessary when they're appropriate political circumstances exactly so let's talk about these depictions of egypt and king Farouk. I we think we've gone through all the issues that through the 30s and 40s are at play here and these very much these are what are all in the mix when the cold war starts and when turkey starts building new relationships with its newly independent southern neighbors in a new context And so first, right, we have, there's some interesting stuff that comes up in connection with the free officers' revolt against King Farouk in Egypt. And here you see both, you see moments of sympathy with the free officers. You see moments of support for their revolutionary. You mostly see a dismissive attitude towards both them, uh, but also towards King Farouk. With King Farouk, it tends to be more harmless. He was fat, he liked women, he liked gambling. Uh, They're less pointed, more easy jokes. And then it subsequently, as time goes on, gets a little more critical towards the revolutionary aspirations of the free officers. The one that I think for our listeners to look take a look at this
0: image, the one that really gets to your point that you're making there is the one that is entitled Egypt, the Hat Revolution. Of course, referring to the own hat revolution that had taken place in the early Republican era,
1: But here it's a guy exactly is put on a new European hat, taken off his tarbouche, but is still an ugly Africanized peasant holding a camel. Striking a
0: a clear contrast between, quote, our legitimate hat revolution and this very superficial, uh, ultimately probably not going to be successful revolution that they saw taking place in Egypt. So in the paper you sent me, you have this section called The Greeks from Martyrs to Monkeys."
1: And I just throw this in, if nothing else, to illustrate how quickly changing political circumstances can change the depictions of individual countries in the cartoon press. Right. In this case, obviously, when Greece was involved in its civil war, which was seen as being against, you know, communist Bulgarian-inspired Slav left-wing forces, incredibly sympathetic to Turkey, sorry, incredibly sympathetic towards Greece fighting against communism, then very quickly, of course, Cyprus rears its ugly head and immediately they're showing a they're drawing Greek soldiers as monkeys. Using the same costume, just replacing a valiant warrior with, in this case, yes, a monkey. And so in addition to all the
0: images we've been talking about, you also have quite a few images here from Akbaba from the Suez Crisis in nineteen
1: fifty six. The Suez Crisis and then subsequently the United Arab Republic. These in some ways are the crux of the argument in that they show how as the Arab states became more and more closely aligned with the Soviet Union, which obviously Turkey saw as its main strategic enemy at the time, Turkish depictions of the Arabs get, get increasingly focused on the Arab subservience to Moscow and get more consistently negative, more relentlessly negative. And so, right, even with Nasser at the outset, you still get these two rival depictions. In one case, he's seen as a beggar courting American and Russian aid. But in another case, when he actually seems to be preserving Egyptian independence and standing up to both of the superpowers, there's this image of him as a magician or as an acrobat balancing in the mouths of these two wild beasts. And this is actually something that in the American context, Salim Yaqub has talked about very interestingly, that Americans at first were relatively sympathetic to Nasser. Americans at first saw Nasser as someone they could work with. And that, again, it was as Nasser seemed to move more completely into the Soviet camp that Americans grew more and more hostile towards him. And you see that same transformation in Turkey. And so you get every possible variation, right? I mean, them, the Arab states is a caravan of camels. The Arab states bound together with a big steel... Sorry, the Arab states bound together in chains with a big ball with a hammer and sickle on it. Uh, The Arabs is a wind-up dancing toy for the Russians. A drunken Arab with its shirt off holding a bottle of vodka in in Russia's arms, claiming that Turkey's going to rape them.
0: What does that mean? I I didn't get this one.
1: In this case, right, it's making fun of Syria's claim that Turkey's a threat to Syria— by showing Syria as a topless woman holding a bottle of vodka lying in the arms of a once again lecherous looking Russia claiming that she's worried Turkey is going to assault her. And so again, the point here is to say that it was Turkey's innate suspicion of Arabs, innate prejudice towards Arabs, innate sympathy towards Europeans that created this Cold War rift between Turkey and its Arab neighbors, I think is mistaking the cause and effect. Uh, I think there were strategic circumstances. Obviously, the fact that Turkey being on Russia's border was directly threatened by Soviet expansionism. The Arabs, in part because they had Turkey there in between them and the Russians, did not feel the same sense of threat. They obviously had a colonial history with the British and the French, and therefore, it was in many ways entirely natural that the Arabs would see Russia as less threatening and as a potential ally. And it was these geostrategic differences that led to Turkish-Arab tension then caused people in Turkey to invoke a lot of these long-standing prejudices.
0: And so I guess the final cartoon that we'll talk about today sort of points to this uh, transformation in how Turkey, quote-unquote, how Turkey viewed its neighbors.
1: Right. And this cartoon I think I like because it brings all these themes together and really does an excellent job of how, of showing how Turkey saw everyone who was involved in the Middle East.
0: So it's the one at the bottom called
1: Supposed Maidens, or Soz de Kizler. And here it has England and France on one side, Russia on the other side, pimping out their respective whores. For the British, of course, it's Israel. For the Russians, it's the Arabs. Egypt in particular, in this case. Being that this is a periodical
0: dealing with cartoon representations, we expect these sort of striking, maybe outlandish, stereotype Caricatured representations. This is, this is quote unquote humor. I mean, we may not find these funny ourselves, but there's an expectation that the readers would have found these to be humorous, or provocative representations. But I mean, you you've shown us a whole host of kind of today what would be considered offensive images, not just abroad but actually in Turkey. In Turkey I think most too, people would consider these images to be offensive today. Uh, what do you think that says about the period we're dealing with? Like, what is it about? these images from the 30s, 40s, and 50s that is so offensive to us today yet was so commonplace in that time period? What is What has happened there?
1: No, that's a big question, and that's a good one. I wish I had a good answer for it. Uh, clearly, at some level, yeah, we've got gotten a lot less tolerant of shockingly racist, shockingly prejudicial uh, cartoons, not as much as we should have, but in terms of what's driven this shift on a global level, I mean, yeah, I wish I wish I had a good answer for you.
0: Well, I feel like it has something to do with the way people identify, like that so casually nations could be represented by a set of stereotyped
1: characteristics. I mean, in part... But I think we still love representing nations through stereotyped characteristics. They're just not as crude. And it's I think we try to downplay the racial element.
0: Well, I mean, that actually reminds me of a previous conversation we had. I had brought some documents that I found at the U.S. archives about a trademark uh, dispute between uh, a Turkish toothpaste and the Kolinos Corporation. And it included this book about trademark disputes uh, showing what qualifies as trademark dispute and what doesn't. And one of the shocking things for me was that most of the examples in this book were of similarly racist trademarks uh, being disputed. For example, a company selling horse feed with an Indian on a horse suing a company trying to market horse feed with a trademark or with a sort of logo of an Arab on a horse. And somehow this actually qualified as a trademark infringement. This is just one example. We had, of course, a lot of them from the American uh, media. It It just shows how, you know, that was a sensibility that was taken for granted in that particular time period. I'm talking about 1920s, I believe.
1: And I I mean, to try to answer some of this in connection with the larger point I was making about politics driving representations. I certainly would say, I mean, I mentioned before, right, that it was World War II and American political opposition to Nazi Germany that really curtailed a lot of the worst anti-Semitism in the United States. Thomas Borstelman's written an excellent book about how the Cold War in many ways forced America to try to become less racist because we felt like we were competing with the Soviet Union for the allegiance of newly independent African states. And racism was obviously something the Soviets were very eager to use against us. Uh, so there are political circumstances, clearly, driving some of these changes. You know, Now, obviously, as Turkey trying to improve its political relations with the Arab world, they have to stop using phrases like Arab hair in multilateral meetings with Arabs because Arabs get upset when they say things like that. You know, There is this sense of political relationships driving some of this. But I do think there's something much bigger going on that I can't explain.
0: Well, at the very least, what we've looked at today is examples of how political conditions might either indulge racist sensibilities or uh, impede...
1: Right, rein them in a little uh, bit. Exactly, exactly,
0: rein them in a little bit. Uh, Certainly something that is worth keeping in mind when we, of course, look at representations in, in today's media as well. I mean, it's very easy for us to see what's going on here in the past when these uh, images no longer resonate with us or maybe even seem offensive to us. But uh, when looking at representations from our own context or, you know, more contemporary representations, sometimes we might miss that, might miss what's really going on there.
1: And in part, I think these are interesting because of the very specific relevance they have towards some aspects of Turkish foreign policy towards the Middle East today. But then obviously, as you talked about earlier, for broader uh, issues about understanding the foreign policy of all countries including our own in the United States. Well Nick, thanks again so much for coming on. It's thanks always for having me. On. It's always
0: an interesting conversation and uh, we're always looking forward to your future installments on afternoon map, which has been doing very well getting out colorful uh, representations of geography really in every sense of the word over the the past year and hopefully see that continue.
1: And I should also add, we have a copy of the paper that goes along with this podcast on Afternoon Map, available for download as a PDF, if anyone's interested. It comes with pictures.
0: And indeed, for those interested in finding more about this, on our website, adminhistorypodcast.com, you will find the images, you'll find a link to the article and everything we just described. You'll also find a little bit of a bibliography that'll give you some background reading, on the political context we talk about, and also a little bit on these publications It's also a place where you can leave your comments and questions and access our Facebook group where you can get in touch with some of the other Ottoman history podcast enthusiasts out there. Thank you for listening to this episode. That's all for this time. Until next time, take care.